0: Into it though. Um, So, good afternoon, class. You guys here at the Chicago cohort, good afternoon. Those listening online, we are continuing in our series on the book of Acts, which we have affectionately termed the Pentecostal Handbook. So, any spirit filled believers listening, or if you're not spirit filled, you could come and get you some. There's some good stuff that we're going to be learning this afternoon in Acts chapter 4. And so I'm just going to welcome up, without any further ado, our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Y. Rostek. All right. Thank you. God is good. All right. Let's open up to Acts chapter 4. Today, in the Pentecostal handbook, we will be learning about um, what happens after the disciples preached and when they get confronted by the leaders there at the Jewish temple. So we'll see how the first disciples were persecuted by the Jewish leaders because of preaching with the power of Jesus and the Holy Ghost. However, despite that persecution, the gospel continued to spread and more disciples were made, plus the church is given, uh, plus Luke gives a little bit of an account again of the the church and what it looked like in those days. Power and signs and wonders are still there and there is generosity. So let's start in verse 1. This is continuing after the man was healed. There, who laid at the um, the temple gate, beautiful. He's gotten up. He's healed. He's jumping around. He's shouting. He's Pentecostal, but, you know, by God's grace. Joe B, move a little bit so I can see you right here, please. Thank you and now they're under the colonnade the porch area there Solomon's Col- Solomon's colonnade and now verse 1 of chapter 4 the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead they seized Peter and John Because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day, but many who heard the message believed, so the number of those who believed grew to about, uh, the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. We see that Peter and John are arrested due to the jealousy of the temple leaders. They named the Sadducees there who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So not only are they teaching that Jesus raised from the dead, but because of that, we're all going to be raised from the dead who put our faith and trust in him. And that goes back to the prophecies of Daniel. There is a prophecy in Daniel about final judgment and a resurrection. When we look to their preaching, we see that it was always confrontational, and yet because of the people's offenses, it was misunderstood. And you're going to see how it's misunderstood here in a little bit. There's no reason to arrest them. They're not saying anything against the Jewish way of life that comes from the Torah. They're not against the Torah. As a matter of fact, they're teaching that Christ is the fulfillment of the Torah. And this reminds me of a situation we had last week where people lie about us while we're street preaching and then cause that confusion to go to others, and so we shouldn't think it's strange. Jesus himself taught us this in the Beatitudes there in Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, start at verse 12. Or rather, let's look at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and then do this. Not only do they just insult you, not only do they just persecute you, but they falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. And we'll get into some of the evil things they start saying against them, but they're saying it falsely. There's nothing against the temple that these brothers have in their heart. There's no reason to arrest them says in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, Jesus talking, because great is your reward in heaven. So when they persecute you, you're getting stacked in heaven. Amen? When they say things falsely against you and insult you, you're getting things stacked up in heaven. You're getting the rewards of glory. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We see that the number of men grew to 5,000. Luke is an historian. He's a historian of the first rate. He's telling us the numbers because we count, we count people because people count. Now we have around 5,000 men, 2,000 more since the, t- the day of Pentecost. And if you include women and children, they estimate the congregation of Jerusalem growing to around 10,000 people. Let's keep going, verse 5. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Now understand, this is where they should not even put them in jail. Why not just have them be free to do miracles in the temple isn't that what they believe don't they believe as jewish people in the prophets of elijah don't they in elisha don't they believe in the miracles that followed these great men don't they believe that god can heal and restore why would they arrest him unless they are believing false things probably the similar charges that they brought against Jesus. Oh, these men, they're trying to destroy our way of life. These men are trying to take away the honor of Judaism, turn us from the law. Those are more than likely the kind of lies that were brought up against them and how they could hold them in their courts. Maybe even blasphemy. Maybe they thought it was in their name. Maybe they thought they were little messiahs as well. But they asked them this question. By what power or name did you do this? Now notice, they cannot deny that the person is healed. They cannot deny the power of God. And let that be our testimony as we look to this as the Pentecostal handbook. The Bible says we will be given words to say when we're brought before leaders. So we should trust the Lord that when we study ourselves full, he will let us preach ourselves empty. Put that on Facebook, please. When we study ourselves full, the Holy Spirit will use us to preach ourselves empty. But we have to study and be prepared. This is not saying that we don't study and take serious the things of God. But these men are brought before the people, the leaders, the family members, all of these people that were the who's who of the Jewish religion, and and they're not now coming against the miracle. They know the miracle has happened, and they'll refer to that in just a little bit. But now they want to know by what name, whose authority. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now notice... This is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy to Peter that upon him as the rock the church will be built. The first disciple among many disciples who will give the testimony. He was the first one to say Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the son of David, and the son of living God. And he was used to preach at Pentecost. He's used to preach now. And as the gospel continues on, uh, as the book of Acts continues on, he'll have one more main opportunity to preach at um, at uh, Cornelius's house, and then the preaching will go to Paul for the rest of the book of Acts. But this is God's promise that he would build his church on Peter, not alone but Peter at the beginning. And then remember Peter in his letter, he was called a rock, but in his letter he says, we come to the capital S living stone as all of us being living stones. And then in chapter five of that first epistle of Peter, he also says, I as a fellow elder among you uh, ask you to shepherd the people. So he did not see himself, As higher than any of the disciples and as we go into the book of Acts we'll see that James was actually the head elder over the church of Jerusalem so uh, Peter was only over the churches that God used him to start no different than any of the other apostles he didn't have a, a senior authority over the other apostles but yet he was because of his confession of faith in Matthew 16 the rock on which Christ would build his church that first of living stones that the Lord would stack the other stones on just wanted you to notice that here Now notice, this is Peter's third time rebuking personally the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and holding them accountable for the crucifixion of Jesus. This is very bold preaching. He said in Acts 2, let's just go to them. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 23 in the inaugural sermon of the church. He says, this man, talking about Jesus as he preached to the Jewish crowd at the festival of Pentecost, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, pointing to them with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And then after the miracle in Acts 3.15 he says it to the crowd again, and this is probably what got him arrested. You killed the author of life, talking to the bystanders there in the Jewish temple. But God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. And then now, once again, in verse 10 of chapter four, Peter laying the axe to the root, putting it down for everyone to hear, says it again. This is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Can you get any more bolder than that? Somebody in the audience might have just been walking by. And then he's pointing right at them. You You, sir, who, me? I wasn't even in Jerusalem that day. Yes, but you, because you stand as a person under the federal headship of the nation of Israel. And that is the same way we preach to sinners. You stand under the federal headship of Adam. He is your head, and you're all sinners because of Adam. And this Jewish nation is all guilty because of what your leaders did. That's appropriate preaching. That helps expose the sin of people's hearts. We do it in love, but we do it nonetheless in boldness and power and authority. And he said the power of the healing was in the name of Jesus. Isn't that what we were supposed to do, what they were commanded to do in Mark 16? These signs will go preach the gospel to all the world, and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those that believe in my name. They will speak with new tongues. They will cast out demons. They will drink deadly poison and pick up snakes, and it shall not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And the Bible says that they went out and preached the word of the Lord everywhere. And Jesus worked with them, confirming his word with the signs following. Here, the signs are following. Are you preaching the gospel? And are signs following your preaching? This is the Pentecostal handbook. This is not just a historical book for us. We've already told you in Acts chapter 1, this is for all who the Lord our God will call. The Pentecostal power, the signs following, healing in the name of Jesus is for all whom the Lord our God will call. And this is for not only the early church, but for their children and all the children's children after them all the way to this generation today. Now in verse 11, he continues on, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. Remember preaching from memory. As I just quoted to you, Mark 16 from memory. As good preachers, you need to learn to commit the scriptures to memory. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now before I get into some of my notes here, I want to tie this in with... Ephesians chapter 1, when we talked about Jesus in, 15, in verses 15 and onward, that he's given all power, authority, and dominion, and that he is the head over the church, and then that everything is at his feet. And this is also in correlation to Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus, after his resurrection, giving the Great Commission, said, now all authority in heaven and earth this is mine. Go and make disciples excuse me, of all the nations. And so, what we see is that there is an appointment of the God man to supreme rulership and authority. And that now, this name given to the God man, Jesus, is the only name by which we can be saved. So, that makes us question a few things. Number one, where was Jesus in eternity past? When we want to be specific, we need to realize that it was not Jesus in eternity past existing with the Father. It was the Logos, the Word, the Son of God, eternally begotten by the Father, living in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And it was the Son who took on flesh, not the Father, But the son who took on flesh and laid aside his divine privileges, according to Philippians chapter 2, and made himself a servant and became obedient even unto death. So that the Father might exalt him and give him the name that is above every name, still in Philippians now, that at the name of Jesus every tongue confess and every knee bow. Every knee bow and every tongue confess, rather, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So who is this God-man, Jesus? He is the interminglement. The union of the divine Logos with the son of David through the virgin birth of Mary. They are not two separate persons. There is one person we know as Jesus. But there are two separate natures that Jesus has. He is fully God and fully man. And when we come to the incarnation, the best way that I heard it explained by Dr. William Lane Craig in his explanation of the mind of Christ is that the mind of the eternal Logos humbled himself into the psyche or the subconscious of a man as we would have a soul as a man. He limited his resource and ability in the body of Jesus, yet retaining his full divine privilege. And so what this would mean is that there wasn't a Jesus mind born of the Virgin Mary of flesh, and then a... Logos mind. There was not two minds in him. He had the solical inner nature of the Logos, only one inner nature. But that inner nature was interpenetrated to the human mind body and brain. And for it to function, for him to function as a man, he simply limited his self-consciousness, his divine consciousness, and only operated in the realm of humanity as we do within our body. And that is why at his baptism, where you see the triune God, the Father, or the representation of it, and an expression of it, the Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and then the Holy Spirit coming upon him in the form of a dove. And that's why he said things like, I don't know the hour, the the sun doesn't, because of that self-limiting. Somebody may say to you, if Jesus is God, why doesn't he know everything? If Jesus is God, why does he get tired? If Jesus is God, why does he say, I can't do nothing without the Father? This is because the eternal Logos humbled himself in the flesh, limited the divine consciousness to only what a man would know, and then as a man, in those limitations, lived out the perfect life, became the Lamb slain, and got back for us on behalf of lost humanity, the authority, power, and dominion we did not have, uh, that we had but lost to Satan in the garden. So what is Jesus being given? The authority that Adam had lost. Did the Logos need to be given anything? No. The Logos in eternity already had a throne, already had worship, already had all power, authority, dominion, etc. It is man that needed it. And so when a man's had failed and a man's job needed to be done the God man came and did it as a man and this goes back to what was said to uh, Eve in the garden. his offspring uh, her offspring will crush your head that's what God said to the woman uh, to the serpent about the woman her offspring will crush your head but you will strike his heel that is the prophecy and then uh, of the crucifixion of the the, uh, stinging of his heel as Jesus is stomping on Satan, he is being stung there by the cross, okay? And then we see with Abraham and the test of giving his son, which is a great foreshadowing of the father giving his son, to test a man's heart to see if he would be willing to do such a thing that he himself was going to do to save humanity. When Isaac was there. The angel came at the last moment and said, I myself will provide the lamb. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And so some of us can look back at these two main prophecies and see the God-man being promised to us in Genesis chapter 3. And then there with Abraham being now fulfilled with Jesus. And so when, when Peter is saying this, he is saying this intentionally. It is not the name of Yahweh that's going to save you now. It's not the sacred name given to the Jews. It is not a religious uh, duty by keeping a certain amount of laws. There is now salvation only in this name. And whoever begins to get weirdy with you and start saying it has to be said in Hebrew or whatever, they're ignoramuses. Because the Bible is written in Greek. So Jesus would be that literal name. But then they now have to say that it was Yahshua Hebrew. But then we say there is no Hebrew gospels. There are no Hebrew book of Acts remnants. Some may say that Matthew might have had a Hebrew uh, translation early on or possibly written in Hebrew. But we have no fragments and we have no uh, recollection of any of these other letters, especially Acts. So that and the epistles, it's all in Greek. So there was no problem with them translating whatever his name would have been given by his parents who were Aramaic speakers, Yeshua, to then call him Jesus in Greek or Jesus in English. Anybody that says Jesus, Jesus comes from the word Zeus is an ignoramus. That is like saying house and mouse come from each other because they sound the same. They just don't know what they're talking about. Jesus comes from the word Yahweh saves. That's exactly what it means when it is translated. And if you can understand that, you can combat a lot of the Hebrew roots movements that you see try to move into the church. So I would really like you to see the power of the preaching by the scriptures that Peter now uses here. Psalm 118, 23, 22 to 24, once again In my best estimation, how did Peter know to apply these scriptures to Jesus? How did he know to do that? Somebody tell me. Not the professor. Somebody other than the professor. Somebody tell me. Yes, sir. Because more than likely, Jesus taught him these things during the 40 days before his uh, ascension. After his resurrection, to his ascension, the book of Acts says he was with them, Jesus, for 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that just be amazing? That's why I think they had these scriptures down. They had them memorized. They knew where they were. They knew they spoke of Jesus. They knew their marching orders, and it was time to go forward. The stone. The builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Once again, you see there the word Lord referring to the divine title of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, Yohei Vahe. This being known as the Father, doing something on behalf of the Son. And yet the Son is also Yahweh in His nature, and so is the Spirit Yahweh. Not three Yahwehs, one Yahweh in three distinct persons. And so we understand the Father is doing something for the Son. And why is He doing that for the Son? Is it that the Son did not have power in Himself? Yes, He did. Even he said, I lay down my life, I take it back up. But what was significant about what the Father was doing on behalf of the Son? The Father was honoring the Son in the flesh and saying, You are the image in which humanity was made. And when they lost it, you restored it. I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ that made us in his image of the dust and breathed into us. I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ that walked with Abraham on the plains of Mamre in Genesis 18 with two angels. And then after the intercession of Abraham, sent them to judge Sodom and Gomorrah if there was less than, uh, what was it, 50 righteous, 10 righteous? It It came down to 10 and they could not even find 10 righteous. And yet we see that Peter knows that this is the God man. It's Jesus He's the one David was talking about. This is how in Psalm 110, David could say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Yahweh said to Adon, Yahweh, the father, said to Adon, the son, I will put you at my right hand. I will make your enemies a footstool. And David said, I have a Yahweh, and I have an Adon, and the Adon comes from my lineage. I bow down to the Adon from my own lineage. Now David would not bow down to anything less than God. So his Adon, as we see, must be equal to the Yahweh that is commanding him to bow down. And that's where we see in the Ancient of Days, in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days gives all the authority to the Adon of David, gives all the, uh, the authority to the God-man in that wonderful prophecy. And now everyone worships him. Once again, was everybody worshiping the Son in heaven before the incarnation? Yes. But what is unique now about the worship is that the Son has flesh. The son has the DNA of David in him intermingled with his divine nature. And isn't that the new dust, as we would say, we're made out of in the kingdom to come? As I like to say, the new mold, the first mold was made of the dust of the earth. Now it's going to be made out of the flesh of Jesus Christ. I don't know how he's going to do it. There's some sci-fi things that come into my mind, but we don't know. But I know we will share his DNA. We will share his DNA. And one of the play on words that you can see in the Bible is it says, Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But when Jesus spoke to Thomas, he said, Flesh and bone. It's not a ghost, and I am flesh and bone, and so what we may perceive is that we will have flesh and bone, but not of blood. And so what will circulate through our veins, if not blood, to keep us alive? The glory of God. Maybe that's a good way to look at it, what energizes us, what powers us, what will keep us going for all of eternity. Now what's unique here, which I love to always point out, is some hidden references that you don't find uh, in the most uh, common commentaries, the ones that uh, most people read are generally not uh, as specific to look for more references to Jesus' divinity. So you have to remember the commas, the quotation marks, all of these things are things the modern uh, translators have added. So this would not have been in the original. And so I happen to believe that when he says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no, under, no other name, Can you give me some water, please? Salvation is found in no other name, for there, excuse me, for there is, let me back up here. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I believe there's a reference to that in the Old Testament. I believe it is similar to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Would you open it for me, please? Whenever you guys get water for a speaker, it's not even. Like you guys, you know, um, are like our servants to do that. It's just we can't open it with one hand. You know what I'm saying? Just as you guys serve in the church, you, you know, it's like trying to open the thing. So thank you. And I'm choking up here. I have no idea why. It is hard to do that. Try it one time to open up a bottle with one hand. Try it. And it's when people are looking at you, it makes it a little bit more awkward. And then when you talk about it more, it makes it more awkward, Right. Listen to Joel 2.32 and tell me if you see a similarity. Salvation is found in no other name except the name of Jesus. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. And as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no other name by which you can be saved. Sounds very similar, just almost in the negative, right? One is the positive. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is saved. There is no other name other than Jesus by which you can be saved. Now, we know for a fact that Paul sees the same reference in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Did the Lord have Bible studies with Jesus? Yes, he did. The resurrected Lord gave him personal Bible studies while he was in the desert of Arabia. What did I say? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I appreciate when you correct me like that, because when I listen to myself, it always sounds funny. Don't do it on a Sunday service, but if you guys ever hear me do that, text it to me. That way I can correct it. Thank you. That's touche for the water, by the way. A little touche there. Touche. (laughs) You were all too happy to bring that out, weren't you, sir? As I corrected you of how to hand the water, you have now corrected me in my befuddlement. So, Did Paul have private Bible studies with Jesus? Yes, he did. He said in Galatians that he spent three years in the desert and the Lord taught him these things. That's why he has the recollections of the communion and the Lord's Supper in red as you read through Corinthians because it's the direct quotation from Jesus, but yet he wasn't there. Those are part of the revelations. And that's why when anybody comes to you and says, Paul doesn't quote directly from Jesus, they don't understand Jesus. Paul is quoting directly from Jesus all the time. It's only when it's word for word that they put it in red in that one occasion. But he is quoting from Jesus all the time. Just as I said right there in the, uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians when he says he's been given all power and authority and everything has been put under his feet, that goes right back to the Great Commission of Matthew 28. I mean, it's all throughout Paul's writings. They say there's probably over 300 references by Paul in his letters to the teachings of Jesus. So it's just, once again, another fallacy that you may hear on something like Zeitgeist or some silly uh, si- uh, uh, pseudo-scholarship. But listen, listen to the way Paul says it. Consequently, f- consequently, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Oh, excuse me, a 10, uh, what is it, ten, 10, 9, yeah, if you declare with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then uh, verse 11 Anyone who, said, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And like my brother said, verse 13, everyone, this is a direct quote, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, why do I see it here? Because you can only call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But now Paul, uh, Peter is saying, it's only by the name of Jesus that you can be saved. So either he is referring to this scripture, as Paul does, that Jesus is the Yahweh for us, the mediator between us and the Father, or there is a contradiction. Does everybody get it? So that's why I see the similarity here. So for him to make such a bold claim, he could not do so as a Jehovah Witness if he believes Jehovah is separate from the Son in nature. Because Jehovah says, my name is the only name that saves in Joel chapter 2, verse 32. But yet Peter here in Acts chapter 4, verse um, verse 12, says there's salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. And in Romans 10 13, Paul says the same thing. So are they contradicting Joel chapter 2, verse 32? Or do they believe that the name of the Lord given to us is Jesus? Now we have to correct the oneness Pentecostals, the oneness Pentecostals who err and now say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all have the name Jesus. That is incorrect. They'll get it from our famous Trinitarian passage. They'll say out of Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they'll say, well, it doesn't say names. It's only one name. And since now the name of Yahweh is found in the name of Jesus, which literally means Yahweh saves, Yeshua. there's the Yah and then the Shua saves, that now we can understand that Yahweh's name in this generation is now Jesus, and Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. But is that correct? No, it's not. The name here has one of two references. It's either name as an authority, The authority that Jesus gave us is to baptize in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or like I like to see it, as we saw in Joel, that the name of the one true God still is Yahweh, but now in the New Testament, which was once concealed, is now revealed. The Trinity was concealed in mystery in the Old Testament. There were three persons there, but they're not as clear as they now are in the New Testament. So what was concealed in the Old Testament is now as revealed in the New Testament. So what is that name of, in my best estimation as we go to Joel? And like I said, Paul's quotation of it is that it is the Lord, but Yahweh exalts the name of Jesus to be the name that he now uses to save. So the Father The Son and the Holy Spirit wanted the name of Jesus to be the name that saves. But the Father is not Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. Only the Son is Jesus. Are you listening? But yet the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are Yahweh, the one true God. So if you would just look at it that way, I believe you would end all confusion of anti-Trinitarian groups, whether they be from the Oneness Pentecostal or Jehovah Witnesses. You can see that this is how the the Pentecostals preached. They preached the triune God, and they did so understanding the incarnation, the God-man, and his distinct relationship now in the new covenant to mankind as the King of kings and the Lord of lords our great God and Savior, as Paul said in Titus. Amen? We continue on. The leaders, verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, uh, excuse me, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They didn't look like the rabbis. They didn't talk like them, but they had been with Jesus. Do I look today like the Pope? Do I look like Bishop so-and-so? Do I look like anything religious today in our culture? If I was walking down the street other than this big cross on my chest, but if I was just wearing a Chicago Cubs shirt today, would there be anything about my dress that would make you think that I'm a pastor and elder in the church of Jesus Christ? No. But if you got to hear my words, would you know that I've been with Jesus? I want to ask you that same question. Are you looking for a title, or are you looking for the verification of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? You don't need to tell people you're apostles, so-and-so. We do believe in the gifts of the ministry still with us today. and In conversation, it can be helpful from time to time, but let your actions speak louder than your words. Let people know by who you are, that's who you are. You get what I'm saying? You don't have to tell them who you are. Let them see who you are. Let it be demonstrated that you have authority, that you have power. And so somebody may just come out to talk to me today as I'm at Wright College, not thinking I'm really much of anything. But then within a few moments, they'll hear somebody who knows Jesus. Amen. And if they become proud, the the acts of the word will be laid to their root, as John the Baptist said. And it will be cut down. Their arguments will be cut down by the power of the word. And they may say, wow, you seem to know more than my priest. And I've heard that before. You seem to know more than the pastor of this large church that I go to. Well, it's because I've been with Jesus. Now, once they were established and freedom came to the Christians, they did establish schools. The Bible colleges were the universities of the Middle Ages, and that became what we now know as the university system, a unified in one cause, diverse in its knowledge. That's where university comes from. And so there we saw the establishment of universities from the Christians, and that's wonderful that we've done that, and you're a part of that now. But make sure the mark about you is not a diploma on your wall, but the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? Because as I've said before in our church, a deacon like Rosa who serves the Lord as a nanny during the day will put some of the greatest preachers to shame as she stands before God with the souls and disciples she's made and the signs and wonders that have followed her preaching because she didn't do it based on men's wisdom or the great philosophy of the age. She did it based on the power of the cross. And that's what Paul said he came in. But at the same time, Paul said, we do have a word of wisdom for the mature. So we believe that we must also move on from elementary things and go on to deeper things, the meat of the word, and not be suckling babes only on the, uh, the milk. Amen? Amen. So when they realized that Peter and John were not schooled and ordinary men, but they had courage, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus, verse 14, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. Now, this is their mindset, verse 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further the people to the people, we must warn them to no longer to speak in his name. So don't talk about Jesus anymore. Isn't that something? What would you do if your reputation was at stake? What would you do if your livelihood was at stake? What would you do if you just spent the, the, the night in a cold jail a jail cell there and for the sake of Christ? And now they tell you, here's the deal. Don't you talk about Jesus anymore. Let's see what the disciples did. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, now I don't think they were twins, like sometimes my daughters try to speak at the same time. Which is right in God's eyes, you know, and they start talking. You no. Know, but you notice it puts them together. That means they were brothers in arms. They were locked together in unity. Whoever was speaking was speaking for them both. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now remember this. All other religions start with people having private encounters with a God that they claim did something special in their life. Buddha under the juniper tree. Moses, uh, uh, um, uh, Muhammad in a cave these gurus on these Himalayan mountains, etc., but not Christianity. He is crucified public for all to see, and He's raised publicly for 500 to see. They are not preaching what they hope to be true. This is not cognitive dissidence. They are not trying to make up a belief system to fit with the great loss of their Master. As a matter of fact, when they lost their Master on the cross, they quit and went back to fishing and their livelihood. It was seeing the resurrected Lord that brought them back and reinstated them into the church. And when they saw him ascend to heaven and the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost, that is what gave them the boldness, what they saw and what they heard. That's why they were told to be witnesses and to testify about that, not about a make-believe hope or wish, but what they had seen and heard. So they made their decision. We will not lie. We will tell the truth. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For a man who was miraculously healed, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So was it their jealousy? Probably. Was it their lying about them, trying to get them to look like they were a sect to take away Jews away from the things of Moses? I'm sure they tried to come up with whatever they could, but it wouldn't stick in this occasion. They said, no, if we try any of this, it's not going to work. We might as well just threaten them and let them go because this person has been healed for everybody to see. We know later on they don't do so kindly to our disciples. The disciples who were once scared now have courage because of Pentecostal power. The one like Peter who denied Jesus even to a little girl around the fire is now standing up with the threats of death and saying, I can't deny him. I must say what I have seen and heard. The Jewish leaders noticed that that they were unschooled and ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. May that be our testimony the rest of our lives. Whatever level you reach in education and notoriety among men, that can be great and used for God. But let the greatest accolade of your life be that you have been with Jesus. Somebody put that on Facebook. No matter what accolade someone has in life, let your greatest accolade or what's said about you be that you have been with Jesus. And they made that decision to let them go under the threat, but the disciples made their decision. We're going to keep preaching. And on their release, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people, to the disciples, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, those disciples that were there, did they start saying, oh, Lord, we want to be taken out of here. We're so scared. Uh, You know, give us safety. No. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now notice, we're talking about the Father speaking through the Holy Spirit, and now we'll hear about the Son, Trinity, once again. David, speaking to David, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one, his Mashiach, his Messiah. That's what it means in Hebrew, anointed one, Mashiach. Verse 27, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Christos, Christ there in Greek is anointed. Mashiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek mean the same thing, anointed. The Old Testament's in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Remember, we talked about that. Everything is Father-filtered. Though God does not ordain the evil actions of men, God ordains every evil action of men that they decide to do freely to work for His good cause. God declares His will for our lives. He then gives us permissive will that we can choose the path for our lives. And after His declaration and permission, He decrees what He will do in our lives. Oh, somebody put that on Facebook. God declares His will, gives us permissive will, and then... De- de- excuse me, God declares His will, gives us permissive will and then declares what he will do with our life with, with the permissive will. Don't put it on Facebook like that. let me say it one more time. God declares his will for our lives, comma. He then gives us permissive will to choose what we will do with our lives,:, colon, and then he decrees, His will for our lives. Is that going to fit on the post? Because that is really good. Trust me, that takes a long time to figure that stuff out. I know a lot of you guys think that these sayings are real easy to come up with, but they are what I spend hours doing. I have right now a whole entire board in my office filled of one concept that I'm trying to reduce down to something as simple as that. Not everything is that profound. I'm not trying to make it be like that. And most of the profound things I say I got from other people. But it takes time in the presence of the Lord to make profound things simple. Amen? So they say this, and they know it's by God's power and will that they had decided it before. And now they pray, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great power, uh, with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Peter and John go back to the other disciples and report what happened, and they pray with Pentecostal power, quoting from Nehemiah 9:6: You alone are Lord, of the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heavens, and all the starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitude of heaven and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And then he quoted from Psalm, literally, Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 2. So already we have four passages he's quoting. Uh, or or rather is being quoted in this chapter. These men knew the word of God. More than likely, they have no parchment or uh, any scroll around them when they are doing this. They don't pray for safety, but rather they pray for boldness to preach with signs and wonders following. The house shook. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That confirms to Mark 16, 20, which we've already quoted here, that as they went out and preached, the Lord worked with them with the signs following. That is an exact confirmation. This is literally what is happening. And so we ought to pray the same kind of prayers when we are faced with persecution. That is the majority of what these Christians are praying right now in their nations. Don't take us out, but deliver us from the evil and help us to remain bold to keep preaching. You meet these, uh, or you hear about these people in Syria or in Egypt. They're saying, I don't want to leave. I want to stay and reach my people. And that's why the gospel is spreading in those places. Same thing with China. The underground church there doesn't want to all leave and come to the West. As a matter of fact, China is sending missionaries into North Korea and into the Middle East. They are a great sending organization right now. You think they would want to leave China and try to come to South Korea or be free? No, they're being sent out as missionaries to persecuted parts around the world. And so we see now in verse 30, uh, rather in this last verse here, that they were filled, verse 31, with the Holy Spirit. Well, I thought they were filled. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, oh yeah, didn't Paul say something like that? Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was a Pentecostal preacher. He believed in multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in that passage in Ephesians, it's in the future present, So it keeps going. It's a, it's a continuum. A continuum of the process. Be filled and continue to be filled. You're filled now in the present and also in the future. Keep that action going. I am running now and I will continue to run, says the marathon runner. I am eating now and I will continue to eat, says the person at the all-you-can-eat buffet. And what does the Pentecostal say? I was filled with the Holy Ghost 20 years ago, and I'm still being filled today. Can I get an amen? So we are a people who are filled and have past experiences of fillings, and we are a people continually being filled and knowing as long as the Lord should tarry, He will continue to fill us. And I consider that that prophecy of Jesus, rivers flowing through you. And I remember being out with my children, literally at Fox River, and they started dancing in the river, singing the song, I'm going to dance in the river, dance in the river. I'm literally hearing them sing it while they were dancing in the river. And if I wanted to give them a real example of it, I would just throw them in the river and let the current just take them down. But uh, that would not be good without a life jacket, and even then that could be really scary. But that's what I think it feels like to be filled, overflowing. So imagine if the river was something you could drink. You get thrown into the river and you just keep getting filled with it. You're just flowing in the river. River all around you. Get a little thirsty. Lap up the river. Lap up as much as you want. It's unending. Are you guys getting the image there? That's what's happening for the Pentecostal believer. And the house shook. And I praise God for these kinds of manifestations. We don't seek the manifestations. We seek the power of God and whatever comes, let it come. Uh, But sadly in Pentecostal churches we have been deceived by Uh, Charlatans, you know people having a uh, hand warmer in their pocket and then putting their hand on your hand saying Do you feel the heat? Do you feel the Holy Ghost? I'm on fire. I'm on fire. Yeah, that's been done having people claiming to be prophets with an earpiece while their wife or executive is in the the front saying we're going to take all your prayer cards put them on the altar and he'll lay his hands on them at some point during the service so what's your name where are you from what's your illness and then what they do is just read it off you know to them into their ear so they you know they see a bunch of prayer requests at the altar they thought that's where it went but it really went to the administrator sitting in the back I, I, is there a Paula here Paula 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 where where's Paula oh uh, Paula I'm feeling a pain in my right shoulder. Is that is that for you, Paula? I'm also hearing John. John? Oh, that's your husband. Okay, well, can you both come up here? And they'll do that. And that's sadly what I think is happening right now with some that I see in popular movements. Because whenever you get into this kind of... Uh, Uh, what we would call this psychic, superstitious kind of knowledge. I don't think that's what the gift of prophecy was. Uh, Telling you your birthday, telling you that. These are all things that you can find on Facebook, and I think that people have just done it a little bit differently. There was a very popular prayer gathering. The man has his phone out, and he's saying, is there a Bob, is there a Mike, is your birthday in January? And it almost just seems to be so obvious that he's just looking at a little script he put on his phone From any information, he could have got people checking into the prayer gathering. And so, um, A, we don't see that in the Bible. When's your birthday? Who's your wife? And all that silliness. Uh, And I'm very skeptical of that, just to let you know. I'm also skeptical of uh, gold dust and feathers and jewels and all of those things. Can it happen? Yes, it can. I'm not arguing against the manifestation. I think there's reliable witnesses with people that I know that were a part of the Argentine revival that could witness that tooths were filled in with gold fillings. Some people say, why didn't they just give them a new tooth? I don't know, but I trust those witnesses were telling the truth, but I don't trust a lot of the other witnesses. So here's the thing. You're never obligated to believe anybody's testimony that puts a check in your spirit. You can just simply say, thank you for sharing, and that's it. You don't have to say anything more than that. And if they want to now convince you of it, say, that is not your job either. The Holy Spirit is in me. If the Holy Spirit wants to convince me of that, he can do that without your manipulation. And then if you see someone go the next stage, they try to use those things as a confirmation of false teaching. Now you're just dealing with a false prophet. It's that simple. Well, I got gold dust in my Bible, so let me tell you something that's not in my Bible. I'll tell you some heresy. No, shut your your mouth and open the Bible again. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so be careful in the who's who in in the charismatic zoo, okay? And here is a summary quickly at the end. All the believers were one in heart and mind, so we see the unity of the church. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. We see this heart of giving Uh, Not socialism. They were capitalists. They were rich, but out of their generosity, they gave. Not because they had to or were taxed to do so. So remember that. This is not socialism. This is capitalism, prosperity being distributed by the choice of the giver, not by a governmental force. The church wasn't even ordering them to do this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So they had their charity done. But it was done a certain way, as we'll learn later. They had to meet a certain requirement. They couldn't just come and not be willing to work. They were hand-ups, not hands-outs. The widows, if they were young, had to work. If they were uh, able to get remarried, they would have them get remarried. But the idea was to really build the community up through the church. And I believe that's what we should do again. And that's the vision of Metro Praise is to build 50 like YMCAs that are our churches in the city. And if you haven't seen that, remind me uh, next week to put up a picture of what I believe the 50 churches look like, because if we want 50 churches with 100,000 disciples, that's 50 of 2,000 with social services, with junior high, uh, you know, uh, K through 12 schools, and all of those wonderful things there, and I believe God will do that, and I had that drawing made a long time ago to confirm what God put in my heart, and Joseph, a disciple is named here, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So bar is the word son. So Barnabas, encouragement, is encouragement, of bus, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So quickly here in closing, Luke gives another summary of the church, this time emphasizing their generosity and the power of God. Many of the new converts were wealthy Jewish landowners who were willing to sell what they had to give it to the church. That didn't mean they became poor, Because if you sell everything you have and become poor, how can you help anybody else? So they were sustaining their lifestyle by giving. They were sustaining it by being generous, but they were not saying, let's all go be poor and live on a commune. Now, some may, like the rich man, be commanded to give it all, but even after that, Jesus said he was going to get, get something back in return. Uh, the Bible says even when we suffer persecution, we will re- and, and leave things for the Lord here. We'll get houses and land in this life. So there's nothing wrong with praying for these things. Joseph, who became known as Barnabas, later on became the uh, traveling companion with Paul and was known for his encouragement and generosity. And I pray that this will be the testimony of our church that there's no need among us, that we help those who are in need, and that we ask God to use us as the Barnabases to do it, and that we will be such an encouragement to the people around us that they just won't know how much we know, but they'll know how much we care. They'll give us the nickname of encouragement. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Joe B., would you please get ready to shut it down? Thank you. Thank you for this wonderful chapter out of the Pentecostal handbook that reminds us, O oh Lord, to always stay true to your word and to not give up in the times of persecution. You move in the time of persecution and chaos because everything is father-filtered. Nothing catches you off guard. And so, Lord, today we confess when the devil's messing, your blessing. Help us to stay true to your word, even with our uh, lives being persecuted. Bless us today and for the rest of our uh, SUM time period. In Jesus' name, amen.